0: The battle of two Northeast Ohio cities to maintain their speed traps is one of the top subjects we're talking about today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and our chief political writer, Seth Richardson. Happy Wednesday, everybody.
1: Happy hey, Wednesday.
0: I love the speed traps, so let's get right to it. What's the latest act of desperation by two Northeast Ohio cities to restore their rights to be speed traps, paying for their budgets on the backs of unsuspecting motorists? Jane Cahoon, people hate this. I mean, the the voters have clearly spoken. They hate these these automated cameras that just grab people when they, they veer slightly over the speed limit. The, the legislature hates them. All sorts of moves have been taken. But we have these cities that are just so desperate to, to hit motorists to fund their budgets rather than doing it the regular old fashioned way of taxes that we're in the Supreme Court.
2: Yes, we are. Chris, you kind of sound like someone who might have received one of these tickets. (laughs) No, not (laughs) once. Never, (laughs) ever did I get one. (laughs) Anyway, this is Newburgh Heights in East Cleveland, and they are still fighting for the right to use these traffic cameras. And as you said, the dispute's now in the Ohio Supreme Court, so they've agreed to hear it and... We'll be having a briefing schedule set up and probably eventually some oral arguments on it. But they're, they're, they're going to have to settle some conflicting rulings by other courts. The communities are challenging part of a law that was called House Bill 62, which was the transportation budget from 2019. Lawmakers stuck some provisions in there intended to make it more difficult, if not kill, you know, uh, these traffic cameras or make it more difficult for towns to to rake in this cash. But uh, they basically say, as you said, it's a cash grab, whereas the community say it's an efficient way to keep the public safe. Okay, Chris, you can laugh at that. You know what's
0: hilarious about that with East Cleveland? East Cleveland police are doing a chase a day at high speed. So if they really want to keep the community safe, you'd think they would stop doing that because there's <laughs> nothing less safe than people driving 80 miles an hour through neighborhood streets because the police are cowboys. I mean, there's such a, divergence there in in what East Cleveland says and what it does. They're the most unsafe city really right now because their police are completely out of control. I guess that's the goal. Let's chase people, make them go fast, and the automated cameras <laughs> will send them tickets.
2: Right. Well, the, the changes that they they the legislature put into this bill, I, I guess they just couldn't ban them outright. So they required that these disputes be heard in a municipal or county court because the towns were using these less expensive administrative hearings. And then they were requiring that law enforcement officers be present at the location of the cameras, which kind of, you know, defeats the purpose of it, of them saving money by doing this. And then they they were requiring them to deposit these filing fees in advance. And, and then they were going to have to basically give back what they would uh, get under the local government fund, you know, to make up for the the cash they were raking in from this, so they were really hitting these communities where it hurts. But as I said, they they sued in Cuyahoga County Common Police Court, and then we've had a couple of sort of conflicting court rulings, and then the uh, Supreme Court that they took it to the Supreme Court. The state did, I believe, and Supreme Court says, okay, we're going to hear it. So this will be quite interesting.
0: Well, the the other thing that's interesting here is the Ohio Supreme Court has just used the most twisted logic when it comes to home rule issues. Sometimes they say home rule applies. Sometimes they say it doesn't. And I defy anybody to find logic in the the meandering rulings. This this gives them a chance to twist home rule even more. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this is Laura Johnston. I just wonder, these cities want the money, right? That's pretty obvious. But like, it makes want. me want to never drive through your town. I never want to come there. I don't want to go to your restaurants or your stores. I mean, if East Cleveland wants more development, you know, connected to University Circle, this seems like a silly way to go about it.
0: Well, in East Cleveland, set their cameras at 26 miles an hour. If you were one mile over the speed limit, they would zap people. It,
2: it yes, has there is a school theory. zone
3: on a hill that is 20 miles an hour. That is where <laughs> yes. I got caught. Yes. I have to.
2: I'll fess I'll <laughs> up to it. I have to. But.
1: You know, and I have also, that's not to mention that there's also, yes, that is a There's That's not to mention that there are also ample amounts of studies, going back to what you said, Chris, that show that. Traffic light cameras do not help with safety. There is there are multiple studies across the nation and multiple different states that show they don't actually help with the problem that they say they are trying to help with.
0: No, it's just a victimization of people. That's all it is. And 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 most people get that. And the legislature gets that. And but but you have these cities that just want to get the money and set up the speed trap. I mean, the other cities you got cities along the interstate that actually put cops out there and rake in the money by pulling people over in their cities. This, the automated system is what aggravated people and one mile and over really yeah. aggravated people. Just
2: real quick here. I had a friend whose elderly mother got her car stolen and they, they couldn't find the car. They couldn't find the car, but she kept getting these tickets oh. in the mail in East Cleveland. You know, the cars obviously driving through there every day and they couldn't recover the car, but they, they could keep sending her the tickets.
0: All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine change the rules for people who were exposed to the coronavirus? And what did the CDC announce about mask wearing outdoors? Laura Johnston, yesterday was kind of a good day for people who've been vaccinated.
3: Right, exactly. If, you, if you've if you been vaccinated, you are in luck. Um, and the rules are getting relaxed kind of all over for everyone, according to the CDC. But according to DeWine, vaccinated Ohioans no longer have to quarantine if they're exposed to someone with coronavirus. This includes high school students 16 and older, which is what DeWine really focused on, because they're now supposed to quarantine from sports and other extracurriculars for 10 days if they come into close contact with someone with COVID. Um, nursing homes and other long-term care facilities still have to follow the quarantine rules because they're so closely packed together. But um, DeWine said that about 21 percent of the state's 16 and 17 year olds have at least one dose of the vaccine. And he hopes this is going to motivate more kids to get them. And honestly, I had a conversation with a high school student last week who's like, you know, plays lacrosse and said, I just I hope no one on my lacrosse team gets COVID because then I won't be able to go to prom. And so this is a big worry hanging over their heads.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a nice thing that he did. He came and made this announcement at the Wolstein Center, one of the sources of good news for DeWine in the pandemic that's been widely acclaimed. And Jane Cahoon, it's now going to be easier to get a shot there.
2: Yeah, you can just walk in now. You don't even need an appointment. And uh, they're going to extend it for, tw- uh, for 12 weeks in all. It was originally supposed to be eight weeks but they um, they ran into a bit of a bump with the pause of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, but it, they are continuing by giving Pfizer shots. But as you know, those require two doses, so they're they're going to extend it for four weeks. And you can call two one one to get a free ride there, according to the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. So uh, it's it's rolling along. They they've already provided first and thirty seven thousand first and second doses a Pfizer at this clinic.
0: That's that's amazing. And and everybody who went, including us, some of us found it to be one of the most efficient operations you ever saw. You barely sit down before you get the and, needle and in your blessed, arm. And
3: pleasant. So nice. Everybody is just so smiley there. Yeah,
0: I, I can't imagine why anybody would avoid going there. And now you don't even need an appointment. You just walk in and, and you're good to go. So. Can,
3: can I add one thing I didn't add about the CDC, what they said yesterday? It say They said you don't have to wear masks outside if you're vaccinated, unless you're in super crowded areas. Even if you're unvaccinated, you're probably fine outside. And what they pointed to is like less than of cases are known to have spread outside and uh, they feel pretty safe about it.
0: Yeah, that's good news because none of us, especially as summer is coming, want to be outside wearing masks. I hate the damn masks. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is Nina Turner's television strategy as she runs for the congressional seat vacated by Marsha Fudge's move to the administration of Joe Biden? Seth Richardson I I just keep thinking of Nina Turner as the front runner by a long way in this race and she keeps doing things that you do as a front runner.
1: Yeah, it is. It it, it it's interesting she made a five uh, it's actually a $514,000 uh, television buy over the next couple of weeks which you know, I kind of could look at it two ways where she has been the just odds on money favorite the entire time, right? She's outraised the rest of the field um basically by more than double. And, you know, dropping $500,000 on TV ads really kind of early into the race could serve as, uh, you know, something of a warning shot to others as well, right? Like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm here to play and I'm going up on the air. I was actually curious if anybody was going to be going up on the air in this election because I, I kind of wonder how effective it is in kind of an off-year special election when, you know, these things aren't necessarily nationalized. You don't have people going out to vote for, Uh, you know, the presidential race or even the, you know, the governor race in midterm years, but $500,000, that is a, that is a pretty big purchase. Um, The the one thing that did kind of have me curious is, you know, you look at it two ways, either she's looking to bury everyone and say, hey, I'm here, like, you know, I'm staking my spot, or there is a possibility that, you know, maybe her numbers weren't looking as good as she thought they were. Or thought they should be, and is trying to pump up. It is a one-minute biographical spot, pretty, pretty well done spot, kind of highlighting her, you know, time on Cleveland City Council and in the Senate, and uh, on an, quite a few issues such as the um, uh, police commission with Governor Kasich. You know, talks about single payer and uh, increasing taxes on corporations, but uh, certainly uh, set, sets the bar at the very least for what we can expect for the next coming months.
0: Well, let me ask you this though: as a strategy, I, I never ever watch local television. So I will never see these ads. I mean, I'm on online all the time. I stream things all the time. I'm on Facebook, you know, know, on social, you know, cleveland.com, but never, even in so many people I know have completely gotten away from commercial television. It's useless. There's very little value to it anymore. So why, why spend that kind of money there Instead of hitting people where they're spending their time now, which is on their on their screens or computers and their phones and their tablets, so I'm not sure the
1: exact uh, times when these purchases are occurring, but if I'm uh, making a guess here, um you know a lot of people still do get their news from the local news broadcast. That's probably when the majority of these are going to run. And you are more likely to find, uh, voters who are you know active and paying attention in people who are watching local news, right?
0: Except so, they're not. I mean those numbers have plummeted. It's it's nowhere sure, but near in, it, what it was 15, 20 years ago. Whereas I you know, I think a lot of people are getting their news by by picking their sources and going. I mean really people are moving to audio as we know because we're doing an audio show. I, I just it seems like the the political spending is not following the voters and and, and traditional, I mean, they keep going back to the same place, even though it's not really that effective.
1: Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, and I think that's just kind of a case of inertia in politics, right. Where for so long and I, you know, people have spent money and it's important to be on TV and being on TV, there is kind of a, um, a sort of status that comes with it right you know especially when you're talking about a congressional election not every congressional race goes up on tv in fact a lot of them don't at all um but when you you know when you can kind of Stake that claim. I think there is some, I, you know, bragging rights isn't necessarily the right term, but it does sort of send a warning shot, like, hey, I got five hundred thousand dollars to dump on TV. Not to mention all the money she's been putting in digital. So it is kind of a full court press. And I think with you know the TV advertising as well. When we're talking about this race, the fact of the matter is it's probably going to be a pretty low turnout affair, right? It's, it's not going to be breaking any records. I I don't think. Um, and so so name ID is going to matter. And when you have a group of seven candidates. And you're going into a, you know, a ballot and maybe, maybe you know a little about the race, but not a whole lot about the race. Just kind of the, you know, base psychology is like, well, I've heard of X person, so you're probably more likely to vote for them. So that's probably part of the strategy too. I don't
0: know. I think you'd almost have a better shot if you concentrated your money on YouTube and just got in front of people there. Anyway, eventually this will switch over because they're going to find they get no bang for it as people move more and more. The smart play this time around might have been to make the audio run because of the explosion in podcasting. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose has had a lot of success in the courts since he became, uh, since he took office, I guess. But he got slapped silly by the Ohio Supreme Court yesterday. Jane Cahoon, what was that about?
2: Well, I think Seth was going to tell us about this case (laughs) 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 because I was off the last part of the day. However, I do know that they voted six to one to put Brian Williams on the Summit County Board of Elections, and I think Seth can fill out the rest.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of been the ongoing saga between Frank LaRose and Brian Williams and really the Summit County Republican Party, which is, you know, kind of odd when you think about it, since Frank LaRose, you know, is from Summit County. Uh, You know, he he uh, booted Williams from the uh, Summit County Board of Elections, basically said that the Summit County Board of Elections was, you know, grossly mismanaged and likely quote him quoting I'm quoting him led to the disenfranchisement of voters. Um, likely people who, you know, convicted of a felony but not incarcerated and eligible, eligible to vote. Um, you know, and of course, Williams has challenged that. And uh, the court really came back and just basically said that, uh, uh, you know, you're you're not basing this on anything, LaRose. You This is all, the uh, quote, the product of rumors and suspicions. Mm-hmm. So basically said that there was no foundation for LaRose's claim and put Williams back on the board.
0: And and they basically said, I mean, I don't think they used the word venal, but they kind of did. I mean, they said that, that he was operating on rumor and innuendo. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that, that that's like pretty strong words for the Ohio Supreme Court, right? I mean, uh, th- yeah, I, I think so. This? I mean, didn't we all well, kind of uh, expect that they would just rubber stamp what he had done?
3: This is Laura Johnston. What about that long list of problems they found at the board, like that they had had um, kind of training in place in something like 2008 and they'd never actually done the training? I mean, there were some very specific allegations. Does the Supreme Court say anything about like how they're going to fix the problems at the board?
1: I don't think the Supreme Court was concerned necessarily okay. with, hey, how do you fix these problems? What the What they were simply addressing was, whether Williams um was improperly kicked off of the board which right. you know they ruled that he was because you know while those problems may exist that Larose identified what they're basically saying is you didn't show us that you know Williams himself is responsible for this you're you're basing all of this on rumors and suspicion or the words that they use which okay. is you know essentially a way of saying well we you know we don't even know if you made this up Frank. <laughs> But, I mean,
3: this this is the second time in 15 years that something's happened in Summit County because they put Archenkoff back on, Alex Archenkoff, back on um, something like 13 years ago, right? So I guess you should stop trying to kick this, the head of the Summit <laughs> County Board of Elections off.
1: Well, I'll be interested about the some of the political blowback from this, too, on LaRose, honestly, yeah. because – know, the like Brian Williams was the vice chair. I I believe he still is the vice chair of the state Republican Party, and he is the chair of the Summit County Republican Party. And you know, Frank LaRose isn't necessarily the most popular figure figure in Republican circles these days. You know, lending back to the 2020 election, while while you know, Democrats and the left criticized him for uh, stymieing votes, right, and saying that he didn't do enough to grant access to a uh, grant voter access for people to vote uh, a lot of people in the republican party are saying he he did too much and was trying to give right democrats too much leeway to vote and then him kind of yeah. going after williams i'm sure is not going to really um you know make a lot of people in the gop very happy
0: and making it even more interesting is he's lives in summit county so he's familiar with the political scene there mm. you're listening to this week in the CLE. How is a study commissioned by Cleveland Heights elected leaders about how police treat residents, unsettling residents of that city that prides itself on diversity? Lord Johnson, I am a Cleveland Heights resident. Just want to put that out there. Uh, this was a very interesting uh, set of results that we saw from this study.
3: And I'm sure like like the council said when they saw that, I think it's pretty disturbing. Um, Half of Cleveland Heights residents are white and half are people of color, including 41% black, but black drivers made up two-thirds of the traffic stops in 2019, which is an astounding number. This comes from a Cleveland State study the city commissioned after the death of George Floyd last year. So you got to give them credit for wondering if there was a problem that they needed to solve. The city doesn't know why each driver was stopped. That reasoning wasn't on police reports at the time, but They have some astounding numbers. Of the 11,237 traffic stops that denoted race, white drivers made up 26 percent and black drivers made up 66 percent. Asian drivers were 2 percent and unknown race or ethnicity was 6 percent. So that's a huge um, jump there, you know, gap. The CSU study also found that 198 of the people arrested after traffic stops, uh, 92 percent of those were black drivers
0: you know i get the city's concern saying we don't know why people were pulled over but but they almost made it sound like we don't know what to do unless we get that information which which seems kind of ridiculous to me if you're pulling people over that disproportionately you you certainly can't argue that black people are committing three to one ratio of traffic offenses that's ridiculous this gets back to a conversation we've had previously about traffic cameras. Traffic cameras are colorblind, and and that's one of the arguments some people make for them, is it takes this judgment out of it. Does the city say what it's going to do to to deal with this problem?
3: Well, they have a 25-member racial justice task force that's still being appointed that wants to take a look at it. Meanwhile, they are going to go forward with collecting more information and and look at it further um the city manager said that they are disturbed and concerned regarding the racial disparity so committees are going to take a look at it the police have done implicit bias training already with the diversity institute they did eight hours of additional work on de-escalation um but they are, are i mean i don't think they have a full-out plan yet on how they're going to deal with it but the city seems really galvanized to uh figure out the issue.
0: Yeah, I mean residents will not like this. Residents do take pride. They did a big survey of residents a couple of years back and the number one attribute that people say they're proud of for living in Cleveland Heights is its diversity. And and so to find out that the police department is pulling people over in those kind of proportions will upset quite a few people. There's going to have to be a reckoning with this and a path forward. You're listening to this week in the CLE how much money did Congressman Steve Chabot's campaign treasurer steal from his election account, according to charges filed Tuesday? Seth Richardson, this was a long time coming. I feel like we talked about this case uh, on oh, so long ago. I can't, I can't remember. It's It's been gestating for so long. Why did it take so long and how much are we talking about? Yeah, I don't actually know
1: why it took so long necessarily, but uh, you have Steve Shabbat's you know, kind of lead consultant, the former treasurer of his campaign, uh, Jamie Schwartz the second from down in Cincinnati, uh, you know, embezzling more than one point four million dollars from Shabbat's account over a period of eight years. And you know, yeah, I remember when uh, these allegations came out as well, and then it seemed like there was just nothing, radio silence for quite some time, but. Um, it looks like this is going to be somewhat resolved. Um, a bill of information was filed in the case, which basically says uh, Schwartz is cooperating with, you know, authorities and that he is, um, you know, going to plead guilty to these charges, which include, you know, wire fraud. Um, but y- y- you are right that, you know, this, this case did kind of come and then just kind of sitting there and nothing really seemed to come of it, especially when it seemed like
0: really kind of an open and shut case when you look at some of the details. Kind of like the case against Larry Householder, which isn't moving any more quickly. (laughs) All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How does the account of a 20-year-old man who was shot by an undercover DEA agent differ from the versions offered by the DEA and Cleveland police? Laura Johnson, we've been saying from the beginning that the shooting stinks and needs a full investigation. Cleveland police had the audacity to list the DEA agent as the victim on a police report about this case, where, where even the DEA agent version doesn't sound like a crime occurred. So what's the uh, latest from the person who was shot?
3: This is a totally different story than we had heard earlier. It's the first time that Trayvon Johnson has spoken publicly, and he spoke from his lawyer's office in Beechwood yesterday. He said he never had a gun, let alone brandished it at this plainclothes DEA agent. And he has his mother and his brother by his side who backed him up. Even the story of how the two kind of met, confronted each other is different. Originally, we Heard, and I believe the video s- shows that Trayvon Johnson approached the truck the DEA agent was in to ask what he was doing there parked on the street. Whereas Trayvon Johnson's now saying he never approached the car and he doesn't know why there was a gun recovered from the scene because he says he never had a gun.
0: Yeah, the the line about the gun strains credibility. They found a loaded gun near him. the The agent said that he lifted his shirt and showed the gun. They, look, the language the DEA and the police used was was phony. Brandishing? Look it up in the dictionary. Raising your shirt with a gun in your belt—that's not brandishing a gun. So, so they, they they loaded this to make it look like he's a serious bad guy. I and mean, he lives in a neighborhood where his house has been shot up in the past. He comes home and there's two strangers sitting in front of his house it's not a neighborhood where you really trust the police so he goes up to ask him what they're doing there and shows he has a gun in his belt and the guy gets out and shoots him i mean he's saying i didn't have a gun in my belt but even if he had the gun in his belt you know he would have a concealed carry violation but you're not supposed to shoot people for that and so i i hope this gets a full investigation because it stinks i mean this guy has a legitimate complaint about even the police version of this, right. if it's to be believed. so we'll and, have... and
3: you wrote about a, a column about this for the weekend, last weekend, and Corey Schaefer reported, too, that the original version that the police gave even you know, raised the question of a carjacking. I mean, it was so different. Than With what no even, evidence. Right.
0: Of it. Right. And they claim there was an exchange of gunfire, which was complete lie. I mean, everything about this seemed like the police got there, got together. The mayor was out there. The police chief was out there to make it sound like this is a bad guy and 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 keep the lid on. And it really the, the, who is the victim and who is the criminal shouldn't be determined until they do a full investigation. Listening to the DEA agent who shot the kid as the victim right. really crosses be- the line. Because,
3: you know, Trayvon Johnson got he went to jail. He's charged with crimes, felony crimes um, after he was in the hospital from the shooting. So he's out on bail right now.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I would hope that the attorney general investigates this so that we have a truly independent investigation, and that the police and law enforcement all just don't circle their wagons and make this guy pay the price. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How has Ohio Governor Mike DeWine made life easier for people in need of psychiatric care? Jane Cahoon. This is not the biggest news story of the week, but it but it's a significant thing he's doing to help people out.
2: Well, it's unusual in that it's bipartisan legislation that was passed unanimously. How do you like that? Uh, The governor signed this legislation on Tuesday, and it's designed to free up psychiatric hospital beds and expand Ohioans' access to online care from out-of-state psychologists. It's called Senate Bill 2, uh, and as I said, it passed unanimously. Uh, It addresses this shortage of space, uh, apparently, two-thirds of the people at these psychiatric hospitals right now are there for this court-ordered treatment so that they can be judged competent to stand trial. But about half of them have been charged with misdemeanors. This is according to Republican State Senator Teresa Gaviron who who sponsored this legislation. Anyway, it would require courts to consider treatment outside of a hospital for defendants like that. You know, many of these defendants facing these low-level nonviolent charges can can be treated at outpatient facilities instead of being fully admitted to, to a psychiatric hospital. And um, so she said about half of those low-level defendants are released without even connecting them to ongoing mental health services. So th- this is a, a, a real gap. She said, you know, right now there's a revolving door of courts, jails, and state hospitals without any progress. And then the other part of this bill makes Ohio the 16th state to join what's called the Psychological Interjurisdictional Compact, or Pact. That means psychologists licensed in Ohio can provide teletherapy to patients in other member states, and Ohioans can also receive these teleservices from psychologists living in other states. This field apparently had been growing even before the coronavirus pandemic forced a lot of these therapy appointments to be conducted online. Okay,
0: you're listening to This Week in the CLE. I don't think we have time to do the final questions, so we'll have to leave it there. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.